Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, going around the world looking for the most interesting folks to talk to about the exciting issues, the most important issues, the ones that you're never supposed to talk about at your dinner table or it depends on, I guess, uh, how your family members feel. <laughs> and in public, uh, certainly not in the mainstream media. And now we're moving into the second hour with Benoit Kampmark. He's an Australian professor who cranks out all kinds of really good material. And, of course, rather than being well paid for it, he gets to publish it over at places like Counterpunch because uh, I think the better the material these days, the less likely that any billionaires who run media corporations want to buy it. So I, I recommend that people do go over to Counterpunch where there's quite a mixture of stuff ranging from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous. And Benoit's stuff is on that sublime side. He has a bunch of great articles out. The one that grabbed my attention, though, last week was on Julian Assange's foiled escape. It turns out that the story of how the CIA bugged the Ecuadorian embassy is, well, shall we say, quite interesting. So we'll talk about that and maybe some of Benoit's other articles. As I said, he cranks them out quite rapidly, and they're quite good. He's written about thieving banksters and, and Biden's blunders, uh, the global military spending situation, and more. So let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Benoit Kempmark. Good to have Pleasure you Pleasure to be with you, Kevin, as always. Well, I'm glad you're still drawing attention to Julian Assange because, you know, this poor guy is almost being martyred uh, for the crime of exposing the collateral murder of uh, the U.S. Iraqi operations. And it's uh, it's just a real shame what happened to him. And uh, your, your latest article goes into some of the details about how he had an escape plan and it was foiled by the CIA connections, some really dubious CIA Sheldon Edelstein type connections. And the key figure I noticed is a guy named David Morales, which is odd because a key figure in the JFK assassination is also a CIA operative named David Morales, who started shooting his mouth off about participating in killing Kennedy and then suddenly turned up dead uh, way back in the day. So anyway, this 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 David Morales is is a key player in foiling Assange's escape and uh, continuing his crucifixion. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, certainly, Kevin. Well, um, as you rightly point out, these very, very curious connections uh, of history and, and high convergences and whatnot. But uh, the, the key to remember here, and this is the um, the aspect of the background with Assange here, and, and of course most of your listeners are probably familiar, but um, just to mention that there was this period when he was – um, actually, <clears throat> of course, uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy. And during the course of that period, there were certain arrangements made with security, as it were, in terms of securing um, infrastructure, uh, surveillance, and so on. Now, what was curious about that particular time was that the then head of the Ecuadorian uh, intelligence secretariat, the defunct uh, intelligence secretariat known as uh, Sinain, 
uh, Romy Vallejo, um, had actually brought in uh, UC Global, this particular Spanish uh, security firm, to deal with um, security-related matters with the Ecuadorian embassy in London. What was uh, strange about this, and I do make the point in the article, was that effectively this invited the, um, the fox into the chicken coop, because by doing that, there was a link established between UC Global, the private security firm, and of course, you mentioned uh, Sheldon Oldstein and, and of course, Las Vegas Sands, the casino company connected there, between Morales, who was providing security advice to on that side, and then the CIA. So we got this very strange link where essentially Las Vegas Sands becomes um, a front uh, for CIA operations, because what Morales does uh, in during his visits uh, to Las Vegas, where he spends time at, uh, you know, um, various properties uh, connected with the, of course, with Adelson, is that uh, he's setting up the links and the transfer of information that's going to happen via the devices his personnel install in the Ecuadorian embassy. So we got this very strange link between Vallejo, the chief of the Ecuadorian Intelligence Secretariat. We've got Morales, uh, head of this Spanish corporation, who wants to impress who he calls the American friends. He's very obsessed with communications with the American friends. And then we've got uh, the link then with surveillance, uh, with Assange and keeping matters up. And that leads us then to this issue of the escape plan, because where this gets rather weird is that Vallejo himself was supposedly coordinating what would have been an escape plan with Assange uh, in 2017. And the plan was to discuss this with Assange in the embassy, um, you know, with his then lawyer, now wife, um, uh, Stella Morris, uh, and uh, other legal personnel and so forth. And the idea was to concoct something by which they would leave um, on Christmas uh, Day in 2017 from the Ecuadorian embassy. And this is where things, of course, went, um, you know, uh, pear-shaped, as it were, because the foiling issue here was the Morales connection with the CIA via uh, Las Vegas Sands. Right. And people have speculated about Rami Vallejo, the, uh, what was he, the, the top intel yeah. guy for, for Ecuador, like, that didn't, it, you know, how much intelligence <laughs> did this guy need to know not to bring in? And this like is that? absolutely right. And I've always suspected there's something a bit fishy about the whole thing. Either he was extraordinarily com you know, incompetent or is it a suggestion that he knew more than he was letting on? He was playing the fool's act because it is extraordinary to think that if you're going to be head of the um, you know, the security service, essentially the, the top security um, service Ahead then, um, surely you'd be a bit more familiar with the nature of uh, this kind of detail. But what happens in the communications uh, between, you know, Morales uh, and, you know, his own personnel in the Ecuadorian embassy when he's communicating with them and he makes arrangements at points, you know, to download material from the server, you know, in terms of conversations Assange is having with his lawyers and so forth, especially even the meeting of, De you know, on December 21st, when that uh, when the meeting takes place with uh, between Vallejo and Assange and Morris and so on, what is extraordinary is that uh, there are communications at that time from the head of operations at UC Global, Michelle Wallemark, who actually does say to the to two technicians concerned 
Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I may be mistaken on this because they were anonymous in the um, in giving testimony at the Old Bailey in the extradition trial. But these were the technicians uh, that were also responsible for conveying the information, but also setting up the surveillance information or surveillance infrastructure rather of Assange in his meetings. And the idea was there'd be the scheduled meeting between Assange Vallejo, and the idea was that do give all the detail you can. We want to know what's going on because we suspect that something is going to happen in terms of that meeting. And sure enough, uh, the discussion of the detail there was what would happen in terms of um, uh, the strategy. The strategy would be to um, essentially put Assange in one of the embassy cars. Uh, there would then be a sequence by which you'd be granted uh, you know, a diplomatic passport um, uh, via Ecuador, and then he'd be essentially channeled across to the continent, and then from there there would be some strategy by which to get him out, um, essentially, of Europe. But, but that was the, these were the sorts of things there. But, uh, yeah, Morales was there waiting, and that material was uh, conveyed uh, towards, yeah, to what seems to have been CIA sources, or as he calls them, the American friends. He kept boasting in these communications about having special links uh, with uh, his uh, U.S. friends, and he does mention quite regularly how proud he is of joining what he calls the, the big league or the premier league of this. So it's very clear that uh, there is a very conspicuous link here, but it doesn't really put the Ecuadorian secret service or the intelligence service in a very good light, and certainly not an intelligent light, shall we say. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it seems that they weren't really looking at the U.S. as an adversary, as they would if they were serious about protecting Julian Assange. It might be an example of how intelligence services and other parts of the so-called deep state sometimes work against their own political leadership, and maybe in they work with people in their community. These deep states conspire not only within a particular state, but with uh, people from other states as well. And it sure looks like something like that might have happened here. Mm, yes, so, I, I would say that, uh, yeah. you know, that that is not an implausible situation here when we're speaking about the the nature of these contacts and the way they're being, you know, un, unfolded here. It, it's, And we should remember that uh, at that particular point, too, the, the public face was not a very good one in the sense that uh, the then, you know, Moreno government was, uh, it, it transpires that, yes, they, they were trying to get, Assange out in that way, but uh, the public face of it was a very negative one. It was also um, the uh, communications that Morena was also having with uh, the UK and you know with others at that point suggests that uh, you know maybe things had to be resolved at some point. So it's it's a bit it's it's one of these things that uh, more material is coming out of because remember this is an ongoing investigation by the Spanish National Court into the breaches of privacy, Assange's privacy, because Assange first filed a complaint in the Spanish National Court investigating Morales and UC Global and um, claiming breaches of uh, privacy, breaches, of course, of attorney-client privilege, uh, laundering, money laundering as well, a range of other things. So this is an ongoing investigation that keeps yielding interesting material. These correspondence or the correspondence I've mentioned has come out in the evidence being produced in that case. And I might also add that what is so curious about it is that all that evidence has not meant one iota in British legal proceedings, or let's be more precise, U.S. proceedings launched in Britain against Assange, of course, you know, in getting him extradited. Um, 
the magistrates court, the high court in UK um, and the Supreme Court, not a single judge in any of those instances even acknowledged the significance of the role played by UC Global and Morales or the link to the US intelligence services or the fact that there were all these grave violations in terms of attorney-client privilege, um, surveillance, and not to mention, not to mention the fact that, as we know now, as, and as uh, it was already being suggested in 2020, but that the CIA had been discussing the prospect of abduction and potential assassination. Right. Yeah. The uh, the British court doesn't seem to care that the people that they're deporting him to were conspiring to kill him. Now, you would think that <laughs> that would uh, be a, you'd have a pretty good argument against deportation in that situation. Well, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about how precisely how the uh, attempted escape was stymied by these wiretaps, how suddenly people involved in this started, you know, being uh, visited by hooded assailants and yes. so on. This, this uh, makes it very interesting because we have, first of all, the material of the actual meeting that's uh, conveyed across uh, via file shared through the Dropbox, as it were, uh, from one of the one of the technicians that was responsible for overseeing the meeting that was meant to be the meeting setting out the plan uh, to get out of the embassy, um, you know, via one of the ambassador's cars, uh, then to make it through the Eurotunnel to Switzerland or some designated, you know, uh, you know destination and whatnot, but. The interesting thing was that you had first that development, so the material had been conveyed. This, but the second point, uh, essentially the two points also mentioned you just touched on, was that, and this is where it, there's a suggestion that the plan was then foiled because material was obviously coming out. The first is an event involving you know, the issue where an advisor to the Ecuadorian foreign minister is said to have had information. Um, it was privy to information connected with the escape. And when he arrived at Quito Airport, what seemed to have happened was that he was assaulted by these particular men. Material was taken off him when he was returning you know, from the United States. It's quite a curious thing, and that has never been entirely explained as to the connection there. But it is very clear, though, that there is some Assange link. Um, and the second thing to note there, too, and I think that also suggests, because all of this is a timing issue, on December 17th, 2017, so remember, it's only a few days after that that the meeting with uh, Valeo is meant to take place. Um, this is involving also assailants who actually break into the Madrid law offices of two lawyers connected with Assange, who have been working on Assange's case um, in a broader sense for some time, uh, the uh, the tireless uh, advocate uh, Baltasar Garzón and uh, Aitor Martinez, and they were getting into the computer servers there and trying to get material there. It's also interesting how an investigation there never yielded anything. Mysteriously, little footage, I mean, there was an account, which is interesting in itself, that these individuals went and were hooded, but there's been nothing really dealt with in terms of an investigation as to who was involved. So that went dark, as it were. So the intruders, uh, according to the Spanish police, were untraceable in the long run. But that also, of course, raises a set of questions. But that's not coincidence, I think, that you had a series of these events, the surveillance of the meeting itself, 
the incident in Quito Airport and the assault on the advisor to the Ecuadorian foreign minister. And then you have uh, the situation, you know, of the lawyers on the Spanish side dealing with, you know, the UC global side, if you like, Balsa Garzón and Aitor Martinez. You have individuals there whose uh, um, servers were raided. So I think it certainly paints a very dark picture, as it were. And so all of this made it clear that the escape plan had been compromised and that it had to be called off. Exactly, yes. So so the the, the suggestion, and that's certainly uh, a very plausible imputation coming out from uh, the material in the investigation so far from the Spanish side into UC Global, but also uh, some very good, um, you know, this is always good for a change to see a, you know, uh, the, the, one of the so-called mainstream papers doing some half-decent investigative journalistic work, but that's El País in Spain, of course, one of the main, uh, you know, news outlets there. And they've been doing some rather good work uh, uh, examining this. And the conclusion that has been reached there is that it's it, the plan was just simply uh, too dangerous to go ahead with. It had been foiled because it had been internally compromised and it had been compromised in the broader sense. So, you know, it's very clear that this role with the UC Global goes back um, quite a bit, and uh, it also does cast some doubt in many ways about, uh, you know, Valeo's role, and and I think the, <laughs> the the ability, as it were, to detect what was really going on, or whether there was in fact a compromise there. Right, and it's interesting. There's a Sheldon Adelson connection. You know, he's reputed to be crooked. <laughs> let's just say that you know, gambling is well known as a great way to launder money. So anybody who's really big into gambling is a presumed money launderer. And we could talk about Donald Trump in this connection, but uh, his biggest financial backer, Sheldon Adelson, we definitely could talk about that. I mean, just, yeah, look, look at where Las Vegas came yeah, from, indeed. for goodness sake. Because after, yeah, after John, uh, Castro chased the banksters, rather the, the uh, gamblers, out of Havana, they went to indeed. Las Vegas. And so... Yeah, you have Vegas Kingpin, by definition, is an organized crime kingpin. That would be Adelson. Yet he's the biggest single donor to the Trump campaign. And uh, here he is, a conduit to the CIA. Yes, uh, and, and exactly. You know, seen, and just to build on yeah, that particular ahead. point, uh, uh, precisely when you say with Adelson that that link, and I think uh, you've summed it up uh, quite well in that, that link with laundering as well. And, and it's no surprise that Morales himself is also being investigated in a connection with laundering in the Spanish courts. So this is the interesting thing. That's also that connection there. In addition to that, of course, it's um, judging from the correspondence uh, that's come out, uh, he was uh, desperately trying to please not just um, Adelson, but also the security detail and of the team associated with Adelson. That's where they used to be. They seem to have been some old um, uh, CIA consultants or ex-CIA consultants. So the link and the bridge seems to have been built through that door. But uh, but that's um, one of those things that the picture is developing. But it's certainly, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say that there is a, a very, you know, that particular link is going to be developed in good time. And if we want to be kind of speculative here and, and notice patterns, it is interesting that we've seen this pattern of, a uh, kind of dubious or crooked branch of the CIA working with organized crime on a number of other issues. Going back to the end of World War II, when the CIA took over as the world's biggest drug trafficker, after looking at how Chiang Kai-shek had done a good job uh, raising money for his army using drug profits, the CIA consciously moved in. And that story is told in a lot of books. Douglas Valentine has written some of them. 
uh, and and then we see the apparent overlap of elements of the CIA and organized crime in the JFK assassination, and that interestingly, you know, there, there may have been a Zionist connection there as well. That's the Michael Collins mm. Piper thesis, and I would mm. recommend that people uh, check out his work. Uh, and and here uh, again, we see that kind of overlap uh, with with Adelson and the CIA spooks who are going after Assange. And, it, it, and then there's Jeffrey Epstein, of course, uh, right? Uh, the Israel's number one blackmailer of American leaders who's operating in that same world, that overlap of organized crime and the so-called intelligence community, or specifically the CIA. He seemed that Epstein had some links to the CIA, even though he was his job was basically to blackmail American leaders on behalf of Israel. So we see these patterns in terms of you know how the deep state operates. It seems over and over and over. And yet, uh, the only people who are connecting the dots are <laughs> folks like me on Truths You Had Radio. You don't know, and might people like Michael Collins Piper, who was marginalized and possibly killed, uh, the mainstream doesn't seem to want to go there. And I suppose I can imagine why not, that, you know, if you get these people mad at you when they come after you, <laughs> you know, it's going to be tough to beat them, as Julian Assange Well, exactly. And, and you make precisely the, you know, these very pertinent, um, very salient points about the fact that the connections, you know, linking the security detail, the, the publishing detail, the, the, the diplomatic aspect, and the fact that the, the Central Intelligence Agency has been so deeply involved in these compromising situations, you know, does, well, it, it suggests the sheer, you know, bankruptcy, quite frankly, of how, um, messages of accountability are ever discussed and so on. And, you know, if you are going to be a person who exposes, you know, gives the game away, as it were, which is, out of the Assange business too. It's to essentially uh, reveal uh, dirty laundry, you know, aspects of how things work. Then um, methods are going to be used to um, get at him. The uh, the efforts being made by the United States are simply given this strange color of legality when in actual fact it is, you know, as thuggish as any other, but it is uh, done through the use of legal briefs, uh, through the misuse, I would say, of uh, treaty law, extradition treaty law, because it's outrageous that the U.S.-U.K. treaty, um, extradition treaty, has not been used to prevent the extradition uh, processes of Assange from even continuing, given the fact that there's a very clear proviso there that uh, political matters, you know, matters of politics, political offenses, one should not be extradited to either country on political grounds. And yet we are seeing before us a very clear uh, unvarnished case of uh, politics and vengeance on the part of a of a big power to uh, right perceived wrongs against their interest. And don't you find it ironic that at the same moment that the U.S. is panicking about a flood of illegal immigrants who are applying for asylum on the basis of being persecuted in their countries of origin, and we're, we're about to be swamped by these these immigrants at our borders, uh, we're hearing, that in all of those people, though, technically we let the, we have to let them in because they're applying for asylum, and that's legitimate. If you're being you have a legitimate fear of being persecuted in your home country, according to international law, you can come apply for asylum, and we have to respect that. And yet, look what they're doing to Assange. The same government that is using this rationale to open the borders and to people. Let's face it, uh, I think very very few of them, if any, have a case <laughs> for persecution like Assange does. Uh, and yet at the same time they're doing that, they're trying to 
persecute Assange and not allow Assange to find asylum in a country like Ecuador or, or the UK or whatever. Um, it's it's mind-boggling in terms of the hypocrisy. It is. It is. It's extraordinary. And uh, as you rightly say, the um, the the language used and and you know to get back to a point you were making earlier about what's being covered and what's not being covered. It was uh, in my mind utterly scandalous for the duration of his time in Ecuador that. Uh, you know, to use that term, the mainstream press essentially abdicated their responsibility in covering, respond, you know, in a responsible way what was happening when Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy. And and by the way, it should be said that um, Assange made numerous statements through the time he was in the London embassy. You know, he that he was being spied upon and that he took measures to muffle you know, his voice and the meetings and so forth, you know, and, and uh, people thought he was mad because he was trying to muffle the um, the fire hydrant, for example, and put something over it there, the, in, which was strategically located near the um, one of the, the rooms he was meeting. And it, just because you're paranoid and, doesn't and mean they're not exactly out to get what it turned out to be. He was absolutely right. And what was happening during that time was that right <laughs> The nose supposedly of the um, supposedly under the nose of Valeo, supposedly under the nose of the intelligence secretariat of Ecuador, um, UC Global was actually um, staging, readjusting, and reinstalling material with the express purpose of uh, spying on Assange, and also uh, by installing equipment. Guess what? In the fire hydrant <laughs> to better get hold of to actually <laughs> listen to his message. Well, Julian, you, you're turning into a paranoid conspiracy theorist. And, yes, and this is the thing. So, <laughs> so what the the press did, as as I'm sure your listeners, uh, many of them would be, realize, was during that time, uh, articles would be released to distract the entire issue about what was going on and say that he'd lost the plot. He, as you say, he was paranoid conspiracy theorist, and he didn't look after his cat properly. It, it was just absurd. It was just unbelievable to see that particular material coming out and being run in mainstream publications. It was extraordinary. Indeed. Well, uh, Assange is known and kind of, if not actively disliked, at least there are people in this red-pilled community that I tend to operate in and around who find that his kind of anti-9-11 truth position is alienating and kind of bizarre, frankly. You know, here we see the same crooked interface of the CIA and Zionist elements of organized crime that, as I mentioned, not only did the Kennedy assassinations, plural, but also, of course, did 9-11. And we see that crooked interface. I mean, there, I, I don't know how much you've studied this issue, Benoit, but there, there's work by Daniel Hopsicker, cool. among others, a very good journalist, uh, on the, the Magic Dutch Boys, some organized crime figures who bought these failing airstrips in Florida and failed to operate them, it called them flight schools, but they were flight schools in name only. There were essentially no paying customers at those flight schools. The only people going, taking quote unquote flying lessons at those flight schools were these Arabs uh, who were later called the 19 hijackers, taking these desultory fake flying lessons. And some of them, like Ada, or whether it was the real Ada or it was the Hebrew speaking Ada, his. <laughs> His pink-haired stripper girlfriend said that Muhammad Atta was fluent in Hebrew and several other languages and that he disemboweled her kitten. He was a psychopath. But the real Atta didn't speak any Hebrew and was very shy and diffident and pious and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's a, it's a whole story here about organized crime elements and the CIA, apparently, 
and perhaps uh, perhaps also Mossad, kind of all uh, cooperating to shepherd these patsies who were going to be blamed for 9-11. And, uh, in fact, the, the biggest single heroin bust in all of Florida history, and that's saying something, happened at one of these fake flight school Ooh. airstrips where Wally Hilliard, a Wisconsinite, he's from Green Bay, has been linked to, guess what, CIA and organized crime. He uh, flew in, his Learjet, rather, flew through one of those airports, or airstrips, rather, and was seized by DEA full to the brim with heroin. Biggest bust ever. And then the CIA told him that, oh, he's one of our guys, and so DEA kind of apologized and uh, gave him his plane back. I'm not sure whether they gave him his heroin back as well. He never faced any consequences. So there's this whole story there around 9-11, and there's, I, I could talk all night, and I often do. <laughs> but the point being, that why has Assange, of all people, you know, being persecuted by pretty much the same forces uh, as did 9-11, what was his resistance to even looking Look, at that? I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure uh, in this. I have not had a chance to speak to him um, uh, about this specific point, you know, certainly for a, a very long time, because the, the focus has not been... Even though these links, as you were saying, and, and certainly the, the, the interface, you know, this, this link between the, the, the deep state and the issue of, um, you know, finance, the issue of drugs, the issue of the CIA, and even though it's all very much there, and of course the connection with the flight schools and so on, um, the, the material certainly that's come out on this has not tended to shed much light specifically on those things. Um, and, you know, essentially, Assange so far has been more guided by that material. And I, I certainly, when digging through the, the WikiLeaks trolls, have not found any specific things. I mean, it would be nice to have something more than just, not that it isn't important, but Vault 7, the CIA trove of documents connected with, uh, of course, uh, hacking tools and these sorts of things. And it was certainly interesting to look at. But uh, a material specific to the underground operations and its link with drugs would be most intriguing. But unfortunately, I and uh, look, if there's someone out there with connections with the CIA, please come forth <laughs> and provide something because, yes, <laughs> still the, the drug deal dealing drugs, files because and the 9-11 that's files. Nexus that's, yeah. that uh, more needs to be done on your app. So you're absolutely right. And more needs to be done in exposing that particular very shady thing. And, and in a sense, precisely, we've seen precisely that point at play here, you know, between, you know, of course, uh, the Morales, uh, Adelson, uh, link and the CIA and the intelligence officers and so forth. And so you're quite right that there is, these things need to be discussed, exposed further and so on. But from the WikiLeaks side, I have not seen that material come out. So I would, I would like to see more come out. And fortunately, things have been a bit distracted of late. <laughs> Right. Well, well, yeah. The, my, you know, some of my colleagues, quote unquote, veterans today, and you know, I'm sort of the token <laughs> civilian. They're uh, they're former colleagues now because veterans today has changed, and so these lead guys are now gone, and it's changed its name and all of that. But they di really disliked Assange and thought he was kind of working with the the Israelis and their organized crime friends, and, and these particular. Guys, you know, see that corrupt side of uh, of CIA mm, and the deep state mm. as as you know what they're sort of working against. But from my perspective, it wasn't so much that Assange didn't. You know, it wasn't like what he wasn't releasing what WikiLeaks didn't have. I can't really blame him for that. 
uh, you know, even if he was sort of surreptitiously being steered by some alleged Mossad assets who kind of made sure that it didn't play out that way, maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. Yeah, I don't know. It, but the, but he but he said things. He directly, he actually kind of verbally denigrated the 9-11 truth movement. And that really struck right, me as no, bizarre. Right, no, I understand. And I do know that, uh, that that was also a cause of interest, shall we say, and, and also has raised, I've also been, um, you know, a few things have been directed in my direction. Well, it's certainly at me about, well, you know, is there some kind of uh, compromise link there with, uh, be it whichever intelligence service, you know, I mean, he is, depending on the day of the week or depending on the week itself, you know, he is precisely because he deals in the information business and precisely because he isn't part of that. There's always a question, well, how much does he have? How much does he release? How much? That, that's one of those things that's always going to, um, as it were, dog this kind of field. And it's always going to be a question as to what is really there? What do you really know? But you're right. He's he's not. Yeah, he has not been uh, part of uh, taking much interest in following that 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 train of thought. I, I suppose his um, you know his has always been under the belief that uh, the the forces of the United States. I mean, he he's not under the perspective that anyone in the CIA would be bright enough to carry out anything like 9/11. I mean, that would be if I was to. I don't want to preempt what he would say on this, but that's the suggestion I've seemed to have gotten from him anyway. That this is a, that, that this is it's That's, sort yeah. of not really the ground plan. There's not the expertise there as such per se. Let's not read too much into it because you're attributing too much by way of skill and and you know to an organization that has demonstrable periods of incompetence in its assessments and its executions, you know, in its assassination attempts and so on and so forth. Yeah, I know, I, I well, take your point, but I do take your, I do yeah. take your point. I really do. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As an agency. Yeah. Obviously, you know, that they're not going to have an open directive as an agency to, you know, blow up the Twin Towers or assassinate a president. But, uh, yeah, the the people within the organization who also work with powerful private actors, uh, extremely wealthy people and organized crime people, they have access to a lot of expertise, you know. But in any case, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of an an open uh, question. Um, And then there's also the uh, the issue of Seth Rich who has been it's it seems to be somewhat ambiguous whether Seth Rich was the conduit for the uh, wiki leaked Hillary, Hillary Clinton emails that were blamed on the Trump uh campaign and you know Roger Stone was investigated in connection mm-hmm. with this uh and Seth Rich was the democratic yeah. staffer who was a who sympathized with Bernie Sanders and recognized that the higher ups had stolen the nomination for Bernie Sanders and handed it to Hillary? He wasn't happy about that. And then the rumor is that he was a source for WikiLeaks. And then the official story, of course, is that it was yeah. the evil Russians who managed to hack the computer. But uh, veterans intelligence professionals for sanity, uh, Ray McGovern and friends says that the data associated with this leak shows that it was transferred not by through the Internet by a hack, but rather that it was a physical device that was used to transfer the data. Therefore, it would have been someone like Seth Rich. So uh, what, what's your no, take I on that? I do think that it's never been... That has never been satisfactorily, um, you know, debunked, you know, this, this, the rich connection, the Seth Rich connection. There's something smelly about it in the sense that, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's actually quite plausible this material was conveyed through because we have to remember also the background atmosphere about what was happening with the Democratic National Committee and what was happening with, uh, the power plays, uh, with uh, the Clinton machinery trying to stomp out, of course, Sanders' influence and, uh, and you know, as a, as a genuine threat uh, to, uh, Clinton's ambitions and so on. So it was certainly 
there were unhappy people. We can get the sense, even from the Podesta emails, we can get the sense from what was disclosed that there was a deep sense of dissatisfaction going on and concern about the nature of these particular challenges. So that has never been ruled out. I, I, and I think the, it's always very handy to blame the Russians. They're blamed for everything these days. Uh, but, but the point is that that, and then I will, I'm, I'm happy to sort of say that uh, in this particular case, I've been digging into it too. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied that, <laughs> that Rich was not significant in some way. And that certainly if it wasn't him, some democratic contact. I think this, there's this assumption within the apparatus in the Democratic Party that somehow they wouldn't be a disgruntled individual wanting to fork out material, uh, spill the beans, as it were. But let's face it, even within those, you know, the party system, uh, Hillary Clinton's behavior was considered uh, a bit too rich, a bit too, a bit too much to handle. So I don't see that as, as implausible at all. And as you say, that issue of the physical handling of it is, is an interesting point, too, and does... Uh, suggest there's something uh, rather fishy about this whole thing. And also what Julian Assange has said seems to be sort of almost a non-denial, non-denial. Yeah. yeah. Am I understanding what he said about Seth Rich? Yeah, it is. It is. It's not, he's never been sort of straight out uh, about that particular thing. He's been more, uh, more direct about saying, for example, say that it wasn't, uh, you know, he certainly did not, uh, you know, have the Russian connection. He certainly said that, but he has not specifically ruled out that connection with Seth Rich. Yes, that's right. So you, and why, why is not, that? I mean, if it was Seth Rich, why wouldn't not, he say so? You. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not sure whether, you know, what that link is. And I'm still, and I'll be honest to, to you and your audiences, I, I'm, that's one of those things that has perplexed me a bit, this, this particular connection. But I, I, one of the things I have to say looking at the material is that the, it, it's just, it, it does match up that it comes from a democratic source. I mean, it, it does seem to come through that way. It doesn't, you know, have to imply that, uh, yes, of course, Russian capabilities, you know, they are rather good at getting at some of this material. That's not an issue. I mean, I, they might be, they might not be uh, having received this, but that's, that's separate to me from um, ignoring the fact that an internal disclosure, and that's, of course, the best source. The best sources tend to be those who spill the beans from within their circle. And that's, that's always been the most valuable source with WikiLeaks um, uh, files. It's always come from individuals who, are, you know, if, if they're not within the organizations themselves, they are certainly associated with people connected with those organizations. And, and so to rephrase the question then, so WikiLeaks has a policy of never revealing sources, just like all good investigative journalists have. But in this case, if you have a source who then may have been killed, yeah. for what he revealed to you, then normally you would reveal it. So I'm just puzzled by, like, okay, if Assange knows that it was rich or that it wasn't rich, why doesn't he and just I don't, say well, what that's he knows? The thing, and I don't know, um, and this is why I don't want to speak for him in his connection with rich. I, I don't know whether, you know, he then saw that there was then a case of a policy to adopt once, you know, rich was killed, which was, as yes, of course, it was, um, you know, very, very sort of a disturbing turn of the events. So I'm not sure about that. I know, by the way, um, that would probably, the U.S. prosecutors would love this sort of stuff too because they'll sort of say, aha, yet again, and because part of the indictment against uh, Assange, of course, is that he, he does compromise sources. That's one of the arguments they're trying to make to say that he's not really a journalist because um, several of the counts say that he revealed the identities of individuals connected with um, 
providing material from you know the diplomatic cables and other sources uh, connected with that. Uh, whereas in actual fact, uh, his practice was to be quite assiduous in redaction and and to to deal with these things. You know what what people tend to forget was that um, there were the there was this corridor forty eight hours when the troves were to be released. Um, because you know the the original WikiLeaks cables were actually encoded in a file that was then the the code was then disclosed the the key in uh, the Guardian book by David Lee and uh, it actually revealed the code and then Assange was then calling up the State Department and saying be wary of this because some of this material will probably affect some of your sources they of course thought he was joking or just ignored him uh, but Cryptome published all the cables then the next day. So in September, actually, it was just before WikiLeaks did that within 24 hours. So, yeah, there is a, it's, it's a, it's a dark business, this stuff, but I, I don't, and I can't really, to get back to the point with Rich, I'm not um, sure if there's, there was an adopted current policy with that, you know, either. But I do know that generally with regarding the general practice of information, you know, he certainly um, was not one to, um, you know, spill the beans on the sources, generally speaking, anyway. Right. Okay. Well, maybe we could move on from the Julian Assange case, finishing it, of course, with uh, free Julian Assange. You know, whatever you think about him, uh, he didn't mm-hmm. deserve mm-hmm. this. And frankly, I think he's more heroic than not, despite whatever sure. limitations uh, my colleagues and ex-colleagues have found yeah. in his work. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's exposing... Uh, crimes of state and doing it at wholesale mm. scale strikes me as a pretty brave thing to do. So I'm, uh, I, I lean strongly to his side. And the establishment that's persecuting him is so terminally corrupt, it makes him even more sympathetic. And you've, you've written about that in, of your recent articles, you have one on the mm. bank failures, uh, and, uh, that leads to the issue of the bankster regime, really, the people that can create money from nothing by lending it into interest, and with all the games that they play, they have a tremendous amount of influence in our society. And then the Biden administration, you wrote about Biden's blunders and the way he still seems to be insisting on running, despite the (laughs) manifest uh, incapacity uh, he demonstrates in so many ways. And, and his ridiculously low polls, he's losing to Trump in a landslide right now, as Trump has just been convicted for rape, and he's still trouncing Biden in polls. And uh, and then the, the U.S. lead in military spending, uh, which is another indication of corruption in so many ways. So which aspect of the corrupt uh, leadership of this empire should we tackle? Well, I, I suppose we, we can first – one of the things about the Biden um, – you know, rerunning is is particularly problematic on so many levels because again it demonstrates to turn it back to um, the problem with the democratic machinery is that they seem incapable of getting away from, be it the type of legacy politician or be it a particular type of political representative that is well to put it quite frankly very much on the corrupt side or very much linked to corrupt interests and so on and so forth and you know essentially. Um, as uh, I do mention writing about uh, uh, you know, Biden in that context, the those who have been trying to get a different narrative going about it and saying that this is absolutely absurd, you really ought to consider some other candidate, at least give the and give these candidates time to show themselves, to prove themselves, to give some sense about any potential chance they might have. Uh, instead, he's now lingering over that. So, you know, Julian um, Epstein, you know, who did serve as chief counsel to the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, you know, he's written quite powerfully on the issue and said that, 
you know, essentially what has happened is that the democratic elites are uh, simply covering up, you know, the truths of the matter regarding, um, you know, of course, Biden. That Biden is, it, it reminds me a bit of some of the commentary about uh, Brezhnev, of course, in the last years of his rule in the Soviet Union, when essentially he was um, almost literally a dead man walking. <laughs> he was just essentially a totally, utterly, right. uh, you know, not connected in so many ways. Various power interests uh, behind the throne were being fought and so on. And now we have an individual. Yeah, the rumors they yeah, had yes, stuffed him. Right. And they were sort of you know, like, the, you know, standing him being up. operated. Yeah. The, the levers were elsewhere and one not working him. But uh, mm-hmm. but in a sense, you can see the the efforts being spent by the Biden team of trying to sort of restrict him. And uh, you know, I use the analogy, of course, about uh, the uh, what happens uh, in old Japanese imperial tradition with the Mikado and and the fact that the Mikado should not be seen, should not be heard. Uh, essentially, should be ceremonial and so on. And this is case here, Biden is being, of course, he has to from time to time speak and so on. And then we have these appalling, well, gaffes that that are probably truthful in their odd way. You know, his position on Taiwan is incredibly dangerous. Uh, You know, it's also dangerous to the allies surrounding him, including Australia, because Australian politicians have been very gung-ho. Many of them have been more or less saying that uh, if the United States does, you know, engage in in, uh, conflict over Taiwan, expect Australia to be there side by side. Um, so effectively, this position from 1979, of course, about uh, the strategic ambiguity has been trashed by numerous statements that he keeps making. You know, he's in last year alone, it was four times. He, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go yeah, to war yeah. with China if they go into Taiwan, which we officially say is, is yes, part of yes, China. Exactly. So if they, if they go into their own country, we will start a war yeah, with this them. This is the extraordinary <laughs> thing. And, and this is the kind of uh, material that uh, should be called out and, and, uh, you know, stomped on, but no, it's it's floating around and uh, causing a situation where, you know, the military-industrial complex is getting sort of excited, and uh, we've got uh, a president uh, who's, in, in addition to that, of course, uh, continuing uh, the supply train to the proxy conflict in Ukraine. So we are on track there for an enlargement of the conflict with uh, with Russia, um, and this notion of a Ukrainian victory over Russia, which is being entertained throughout the security establishment and a dip- diplomatic solution sort of totally ditched. This is a very dangerous time. And, and having Biden there, you know, is looking you know, dis- uh, disturbing, actually, you know, quite frankly, in the context of that. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, you certainly could imagine him. Uh, blundering into situations that everybody would later regret. Uh, although in the past, it's been kind of a mixed bag in terms of whether Biden is totally on board with the insane extremist neocons or maybe not quite. Completely. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's, it's, not, it's not always yeah, clear yeah. in terms of how he positions it. But I, I, I put it this way. I like to sort of draw the contrast uh, um, in terms of, say, Biden's approach to, say, the Indo-Pacific. And, of course, we need to remember that for all the uh, Ukrainian uh, aid and, and for that, so the primary broader strategic focus of the United States has been to shift towards the Indo-Pacific and the containment of China. Um, and that's where I, I see deep concerns, because in that particular context, the um, and some of your uh, readers, it's not, it's not perhaps as known in the States now, but the AUKUS agreement, of course, with the United, between the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and Australia is essentially a spear, using Australia mainly as a sort of spear uh, in terms of uh, real estate, <laughs> strategic real estate to position bases 
uh, forward bases, for example, for submarines, uh, the nuclear propelled submarines, um, to uh, deal with any conflict with China. So what's um, happening there is that it's it, it, it looks like preparation for war, even though we can always take statements at face value from the Pentagon that China is not necessarily the target. But it's very obvious what's going on here. And an agreement like AUKUS is uh, a very dangerous one, you know, uh, you know, from various perspectives, not least of all that it's to take Australia as an example. It's essentially hollowed out the Australian military establishment and replaced it with American interests. Um, America, uh, I've, I've mentioned elsewhere that Australia has become a retirement village uh, for doddery U.S. rear admirals. Um, and we're talking about literally dozens of U.S. retired consultants from the U.S. Navy, primarily the Navy, um, advising Australia about their Navy um, requirements, about uh, naval deployments, and about treating Australia more as a kind of a forward base rather than a defensive posture uh, in any future conflict. So I see those things as problematic. And, and by the way, it's always interesting. Trump has mentioned it in a very negative way in this sense, because these strategists here in Australia are terrified that if Trump were to win the White House, as he's, he's made various statements that he may withdraw from AUKUS, he said that, well, if, if he may not lend, he may not send the Los Angeles submarines to the Australians, then this could also weaken the arrangement. As far as I'm concerned, bravo, if that was the case. But Biden, you know, it's one of those strange things about how the political dimension works out. It is, yeah. Well, Trump had made noises about ending NATO. He said, what, what's NATO good for? You know, but of course, that wasn't one of the very, very few items he was able to actually push through in terms of what he really accomplished during his presidency. There wasn't, wasn't a whole no, lot. No. And it, so it seems there's a bipartisan consensus for this insane neocon strategy of simultaneously antagonizing Russia, China, Iran, and even the whole world by these sanctions on Russia and basically pushing a lot of the world into a countervailing mm. block. And I suppose that might be good for the military industrial complex and their profits and uh, maybe for the fanatical ideologues who somehow get a living out of all of this. But for normal people, it just looks nutty. Yeah. Like if you were actually trying to run the U.S. empire, quote unquote, responsibly, which may be a contradiction in terms, of course, <laughs> why would you simultaneously antagonize you know, the, these huge countries, China, the biggest, wealthiest economy on Earth now by real parity purchasing power measures, and then Russia, the biggest source of raw materials. I mean, together, that's pretty formidable. Yes, it is. You're absolutely right. And it's also um, suggesting that, they, that many of those, as it were, you know, be it uh, the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, are sort of asleep at the desk when they don't understand the, the, the influence now being exercised by, as you say, the countervailing bloc. The fact that, um, you know, and you uh, would be very well versed in this, you know, the, uh, the, the, the shifting diplomatic tides between uh, Riyadh and, and Tehran, uh, the, the efforts to cool you know, or warm up rather um, thaw relations between Saudi Arabia and uh, of course, Iran, the arch enemies, uh, and, and now and, Turkey, yeah, now Turkey and exactly, Syria as Turkey's well. Turkey's role and and the, the fact that China is playing brokering roles in these particular arrangements, and the fact that this the global South has a very different perspective about such things as the Ukraine war, has a very different perspective about uh, you know this um, messianic uh, tendency and drive from Washington, you know, with its allies, with its AUKUS, with its you know, with its attempt to contain China. So it's, it's, that part is developing literally under the noses 
of uh, the uh, the Imperium's experts, as it were, back in Washington. And it's uh, it, it it and in the in all this time, who's profiting? It's the military industrial complex. It's the fact that the United States remains you know, the largest spender of the next nine powers combined. It's just absurd. So the chi the, the notion that China is responsible for the greatest. Uh, you know, uh, conventional expenditure in, in recent memories is one of those fascinating lies that just ignores the fact that the U.S. still to this day has 37 percent of the global arms expenditure on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, and it might be yeah, higher than that. These are just figures from the Stockholm Peace Institute that I've uh, that I'm citing. But uh, but I'm absolutely right. certain. It's high. In fact, they, they they admit at the Institute the Institute does some interesting work on this, the Peace Institute in Stockholm, but they also admit that these are figures they can only gather from certain official sources. It doesn't, as we know, the defense industry is incredibly opaque, <laughs> very hard in some ways in terms of detecting what exactly is being spent and what is being acquired in pro- and procurements. But uh, it's, uh, let's say at a conservative estimate, that's still extraordinary, 37% uh, in terms of arms. That's right. yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, between a third and half of a global military spending all by one country. That is ridiculous. And I think that when you start adding the cost in the financing, that is the compound interest on previous wars, that's when the U.S. really shines in terms of its military spending. Uh, but I don't have the numbers in front of me, so we'll, we'll leave it there on that one. We only have a couple of minutes left. And uh, you did write an article about these bank failures and one way that the U.S. empire could fail and that that massive military-industrial complex could basically collapse, as well as the military bases, 800-plus military bases around the world, would be if the American dollar uh, implodes and the bank and or the banking system implodes. And there, we have seen this uh, series of failures. Do you see a major systemic threat anytime soon? Well, I, I, one of the things that I, I do see is that there is, uh, you know, the, the, the whole concept of uh, de-dollarization and, and the idea that other currencies may sort of come up as being more attractive and so on. I, I do see that the dollar as, as, as the tradable currency will be there for some time, but its influence will not you know, last, uh, you know, as long as people would like to think, various analysts. Uh, and I, the reason why is that there were so many other challenges as well um, coming from, for example, uh, and this is something the U.S. is, is quite lagging in, uh, things like, for example, cryptocurrencies, but also tradable currencies from a from a central bank perspective. So that whole field of central bank uh, digital currencies that are being discussed, and again, uh, pro, the project, Project M, which is being led by the Chinese Central um, Bank and a range of other banks in, in the Asia-Pacific Asia region, demonstrate that other movements are taking place which are being sort of sh- shunned. But I have to say, though, the, the, the Fed, so the, the Federal Reserve has been making some worried mutterings about the possibility that influence in these areas is simply not up to scratch. They're simply losing in that particular, if you if you want to call it a currency race, whatever you want to call it, um, they're certainly back back in the line there. Whereas um, other states are very much investing in this. So I do see that there are these emerging blocks uh, of finance that are providing other options. And of course, when you start in using sanctions, and when you start, as you pointed out before, using the sanction regimes against Russia, this encourages innovation. 
this, this encourages efforts to try to bypass the particular systems and particular restrictions in place. And this is an incentive. Getting, encourages getting yeah, out exactly. of dollars. Yes, that's yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, if you don't want to be sanctioned, get exactly. out of dollars. And okay, precise, and this, <laughs> and more and the and world is. because, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly in dollar terms, and, the, and, and this is not something discussed very much um, you know, in the States, uh, um, as you know. Except on radio shows like this, which unfortunately oh. is coming to an end. So thank you so much, Benoit Kebark. It's always a good conversation. This was really excellent. Uh, free Julian Assange. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay, likewise. Take care. That's Benoit Kempmark. I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthShehead.com and KevinBarrett.substack.com. See you next time.